Welcome to Propinquity Press, where we bring people together with the hope that that experience changes the world. We hope you enjoy this selection by author William Spangler Dunning. Some secrets need to be told, while others should remain hidden through the art of truthful storytelling, BSD. The Farm and Best Kept Secrets. At the bottom of Dock Bay's Hill, and just a little way up the valley, between the fields of corn, existed a place that sat just outside of time. And for a while in my childhood, I thought it was the heaven described in my Sunday school classes. As with all things remembered from long ago, with the eyes and ears of my younger self, some details from those days are a little or slightly askew from what actually took place. Even the name of that geographic memory marker, Doc Bay's Hill, was etched in my childhood brain as Doc Base Hill, B-A-S-E. My parents often shared stories about a legendary doctor who had once lived at the bottom of that hill. After his death, his hill had become one of those name places that locals use when giving directions on how to find a place without street names. When telling people how to find our family farm, my parents would always say, when you get to the bottom of Doc Bay's hill, turn left. I, and I believe many others from my generation, who never knew Doc Bay, interpreted those audio utterances as Doc Bass Hill. However, despite a few mislabeled details that lodged in my early brain, the words in this story about what took place in that valley are true to the way I remember them. The memories I formed there contained equal portions of imparted wisdom from my grandparents, balanced with activities that I am sure violated child labor laws, on a map, this place is located on Highway 34 in between Ottumwa and Albia, Iowa. But we just called it the family farm. It was the one place that was always far enough away from the world I knew in my childhood neighborhood that it allowed me to dream and expand my understanding of who I might become. Yet, standing in my grandparents' front yard and looking farther up the valley, I felt a pull to explore what was on the other side of the next hill. The dual nature of the way I perceived our family farm both encouraged me to grow into something I was not yet, while at the same time often calls me back to a time when I, and really everything, was simpler and beautiful. If I really were from Mars, I think I would still want a vacation now and then on our family farm. Over generations, the family scattered far from that valley. The well-used farmhouse of my grandparents has long since been replaced, and fields of corn are now surrounded by a modern vineyard. I suppose it, too, has become one of those local geographic markers, the old Jones place. However, when I breathe in deeply and let my mind wander to that valley on old Highway 34, I can smell the musty black dirt 
And when I breathe out, I can hear the voice of my grandmother saying, you are going to be okay. And she was right. Best kept secrets. Breathe was what we did most of all on the farm. I know that most city people talk about fresh country air, but I remember the other smells that were not so fresh, like the ammonia and earthiness of the hog lot that always left a slightly acidic tingle on my tongue. My grandfather used to joke that he would time the spreading of the manure on the fields with local school breaks to dissuade city dwellers from moving to the country. I do not know if that was true because as I remember it, the fields always seemed to be emanating some form of wet dog or dead skunk-like aroma most of the time. Yet, after a cooling rainstorm would blow through in the middle of the summer, there was nothing like the smell of ancient soil and earthworms drifting across the fields. During those moments, the family gatherings always moved outside to the porch, both to breathe in a more palatable fresh country air, and if we were lucky, to listen to my grandparents' stories about how it was when they first came to live on the farm. My grandfather had lived most of his life before I met him in 1968. He was born during the middle of the First World War, making him the perfect age to be drafted into the army when the world was forced once again into battles where young men often died. When I was a curious young grandchild, I asked my grandfather about the one black and white picture of him in his old army uniform that sat on the shelf just above his well-worn recliner. He told me it was just a picture from another place in time and said it in a tone that conveyed even to a naive grandson that no further questions were appropriate. Later in my life, my grandmother explained to me that he kept that picture on the shelf as a reminder of why he had become a farmer. After a long day and night in the fields, he would come inside, sit in his chair, and look up at that picture and know the happiness that came from living far from the rest of the world. Shortly after he returned home from fighting in Europe during the Second World War, my grandfather fell in love with two things. My grandmother and the idea of raising a family far from what he considered the mistakes of other human beings. Our family farm protected by that valley, was just the place to hide from whatever stories were hidden in that picture on that shelf. My grandmother, too, kept a few secrets in her past that she only revealed to me during the last few weeks of her life. When I asked why she had never told me about the life she had before she came to live on the farm with my grandfather, she told me that it was because those moments were not worth telling other people. One of the first lessons I learned on the farm was that human beings often keep secrets as an act of love for the next generation, as an intentional act of not passing on the hurt and anguish of their lives to their children or grandchildren. The soil and shape of the land that made up the farm was formed by ancient weather and erosion patterns over many millennia. However, the particular human protective oasis I grew up knowing as the farm was created through my grandparents' caring and calculated efforts to keep secrets. I am forever thankful they did.
The spectacular thing about being a grandchild was being able to explore the many different places around the farm without adult supervision. The adults often went directly from sitting in their cars to sitting in the living room and talking about things they just had to share with one another since their last visit to the farm. I do not remember any adults ever actually telling me to go outside and play so that they could share adult secrets with each other. However, on the few occasions I did try to sit and listen to their conversations, it was almost as if they were trying to make their lives seem dull and uninteresting as to encourage me to go outside and play. What I recall mostly is a series of mundane topics like work schedules, refrigerator repairs, and recipe exchanges. I know they must have talked about more than those boring life topics because during those few times when I surprised them with a quick show and tell of my latest skinned knee or bruised elbow, I took notice of the tears that were quickly wiped away from the cheek of one relative or another as I came running into the room. Even then, as a young child, I knew that most people do not cry over refrigerator repair conversations, no matter how much drama has gone into the telling. I also learned through my observation of those tears that there is a danger that goes with not knowing the secret stories that adults hide from the next generation. With every adventure around the farm, we learned a new story from the past and journeyed that much closer to becoming adults who might have secrets worth telling too. Every visit to the farm started with the slow crackle of pulling up the slightly inclined coal-cindered driveway. Technically, the substance is called slag and was a leftover glass metallic chunks that refused to be consumed by my grandparents' furnace. Over many decades, my uncles and aunts, as part of their farm chores, had carried bucket after bucket of this coal waste out to the old driveway as a free substitute for gravel. Unknown to them and most of the working poor, this byproduct is now known to cause cancer with prolonged exposure. Say, children playing in it like it was sand. It is really a miracle that my relatives do not have more health problems than they do. This driveway was squeezed in between the full acre garden on the right and the main house to the left. As we rolled up in the driveway, I always looked out the window to see how much the plants in the garden had grown since our last visit. I particularly loved to watch the watermelons grow from small round bowls, indistinguishable from the dirt clods surrounding them, into football-shaped tubes of tastiness. I often looked the window of the car in anticipation of what was to come, particularly if I caught sight of one that was the size of a small pig. I know it sounds odd to lick a window. My mother thought so too and she would look at me as if she was raising a child from another planet. But those farm-raised watermelons really were that delicious. Watermelon is the junk food of the garden. I knew that the big ones, the pig-sized ones, had to be picked that day to prevent them from spoiling in the field. And with that, I would be getting a slice or two of watermelon for a mid-morning snack. When the sun was at its hottest during the summer months, crunching down on the crisp and natural sugar water of watermelon provided just the needed burst of energy to start the journey to new secret places I had yet to explore on the farm. Most people, when, or if they ever, imagine what the Iowa landscape looks like, would describe it as flat and devoid of any topographical variety. 
This outsider understanding is actually true for about 95% of my home state. And we are proud of this geographic reality because it has allowed generations of farmers to play a vital role in keeping the globe fed without the fear that the whole world might want to come and live nearby. All the Iowans I know are some of the friendliest and most welcoming people in the world. But they just prefer to live in a place where they do not have to practice this neighborly niceness with outsiders on a daily basis. However, in southern Iowa, near the middle of the state, there is an anomalous area untouched by the grinding and crushing nature of the Ice Age glaciers. Any drive down one of the old highways, like Iowa 5, will create a sensation similar to that of traveling on an ocean-going vessel as it moves up and down 200-foot rolling waves in the ocean. The only difference is that now the waves stand still and permanent as the remnants of an ocean from long ago. If one flies high above the landscape in a hot air balloon or even now with Google Earth, a rippling and undulating pattern can be observed in the land below, just like the rolling indentations found at the edge of an ocean beach. It is like looking back in time and seeing an exact copy of the ways from long ago now imprinted on the area where my grandparents established our family farm. My grandparents were Iowans and still desired to maintain a place that was protected from the rest of the world, despite this anomalous topography of southern Iowa. The farmers who live in the rest of flat Iowa could see the world coming and often had time to prepare for its arrival. However, our farm and family tended to suffer from devastating surprises when the troubles of the world would appear at the last minute, just over the hill of our valley and lodge themselves somewhere in the middle of our family's happiness. One of the places I loved to play the most was in the old two-bay garage that sat parallel to the main house. I think I liked it because it had obviously been a two-bedroom house at some point in its history. The two large portions of the garage had hints of once having been a living room and a kitchen area as the walls still had large chunks of peeling red and blue pastel wallpaper hanging everywhere. Off to the right side was a small room that still had the plumbing fixtures for the toilet, indicating that it had once been a bathroom. By the time I came along to play inside the walls of this garage house, much of its past was covered with dust, rust, and tractor grease. Workbenches had been added along with shelves to store all kinds of tools, nuts, bolts, nails, and screws. This was the place where my grandfather fixed old clocks, door hinges, and other random farm equipment. My most vivid memories of that garage are always accompanied by the combined smells of creosote from the old railroad ties holding up the ceiling and the aroma of old fish guts emanating from deep within the fibers of the wood benches. These two smells converged in the recesses of my old factory senses every time I remembered the men of the family standing under its roof and cleaning our catch of bluegill caught fresh that day from our own farm ponds. I loved to just wander into the bathroom area, completely hidden from all other people, and sit in the damp coolness of the quiet that existed in that space. Other than the low hum and repetitive clicking of the electric fence transformer, the house remained silent with regards to its past stories. Family secrets are difficult to acquire on their own, and 
sometimes have to be learned by following the sounds and stories that you are allowed to know. These infrequent breadcrumbs of information often pointed me to the deeper truths of my family history. On occasion, I would hear an adult refer to the garage as the elephant house. When I asked if the building had been some kind of animal exhibit at a zoo in his past life, one of my brothers, who shall not be named for his own protection and mine, said he would tell me the story if I would first help him test the electric fence. Quote, test was a code word for playing the made-up game that is better understood as electric fence roulette. The electric fence was an amazing innovation for cattle farmers because it provided an easier and more reliable way of keeping the cattle in the field or pen rather than letting them wander onto the road or worse, into the garden. Cattle are extremely destructive, particularly when they team up as a herd, which they often do. So the ability to run a line around an area and run pulses of electricity down the wire as a deterrent to the cattle escape artist was revolutionary. The key to an electric fence and the farmer's budget is that the electricity did not continuously run through the line. A box called the transformer or energizer would send a pulse down the line every 15, 30, or 45 seconds and could be programmed to stay energized for the same increments of time. Most cattle are not the smartest animals on the farm and respond to intermittent negative reinforcement. So after training the cattle in a particular field, my grandfather would increase the interval time so that more often than not, the electric fence had no power flowing to it. However, as the weeds grew up alongside the fence, they tended to interfere with the flow of electrical pulses as they touched the wire. If this reduction of electricity went on too long, even the slow processing cattle would figure out an exit strategy through that section of the fence. We actually had a tool that could be laid on the wire to measure if there was electricity pulsating through the line. If electricity was present, then a little light bulb would illuminate. Just the same. That was the safe and boring way to test the electric fence. And it would have been plain embarrassing for us to proceed in a fashion where we were least likely to be harmed. So that is where the game came into play. Electric fence roulette was a rite of passage, or at least that is what my brother told me that day. The way it works is simple. Each person would grab the line by making a fist around the wire. We would each take our turn holding the wire for 15 seconds. And if nothing happened, we would release it and step away. Then the next person would take hold of the wire. This went on until someone detected the pulse of electricity or we had played long enough to determine that no electricity was getting to that point in the line. This continued until someone found the electricity or more accurately, until the electricity found us. So in exchange for information on the elephant house, I agreed to play the game and reached out and grabbed the wire. I turned to tell my brother that the electricity was not flowing when, all of a sudden, nothing happened. When I say, quote, nothing, I don't mean nothing in the sense that I stood there bored because of a lack of anything happening. I say nothing in that I do not remember anything for around five seconds as the energizer engaged the line to its fullest capacity. As my memory returned, I realized that I was now kneeling next to the fence and my forearm muscle was slowly releasing my hand from the wire. As it uncoiled, 
I began to feel an intense, prickly, needle-like sensation spread throughout my whole body. I have never poked myself with a thousand needles all at once, but I imagine that is what it would take to feel what I was experiencing as the final few electrons trickled through the wire. I am thankful for the frugalness of my grandfather as he had set the pattern of the energizer to its lowest duration and output settings. I am alive and okay because of his budgetary stewardship. With my right arm dangling by my side, I shouted to my brother, now tell me about the elephant house. At a certain age, brothers are often locked in a constant state of battle for attention and dominance. My brother was older, stronger, and a foot and a half taller, but he also honored the unofficial brotherly battle code. Since I had nearly lost my life, and promised not to tell my mother about my electrifying experience, creating my own family secret, he began to share what he knew regarding the elephant house. It is important to note that when information is acquired following near-death battles for brotherly superiority, all details cannot be trusted. This is because the teller is likely to have exaggerated some details and the listener's memory cells could have been damaged by the voltage flowing through his brain. So listeners, beware. But the truth of this story has been validated from other family members who once roamed around our family farm. The known facts about the building in question are as follows. First, it was once a house that sat higher on the hill and second, despite all reasonable suspicion, it was moved by an elephant to its current location, where, third, it eventually became the garage we all played in during our visits. When my oldest brother, Ray, was still small enough to ride my grandfather's blue-tick coonhounds like they were horses, he too was a storyteller. The perspective from which he saw things made most adults struggle to take him seriously and some even thought his imaginative exaggeration was a sign that he would grow up to be a delinquent and a menace to society. During one of our family reunion gatherings, Ray announced with pride to all the women of the family who were busily cooking in the kitchen that he had found the largest worm in the world. Because Ray was known to be an exaggeration expert, or because they were too busy to really pay attention to a five-year-old talking about a worm, they simply said, almost in unison, that's nice, or good for you, or some other expressionless phrase designed to push a child out of the kitchen. So Ray went back to playing with the largest worm in the world. The human mind is able to absorb a lot of information at once, even if most of it gets ignored or never processed until much later. Yet I imagine that at some point, in between the stirring of the mashed potatoes and basting the turkey, grandma's or perhaps my mother's mind processed enough of what Ray had said and began screaming. Shortly thereafter, they began running out the door to find where Ray was playing. It had finally occurred to them that Ray's world's largest worm might not be a worm after all. They found him gently playing with a six-foot bull snake he had named Charlie. Ray did not lie in the stories he told. He simply weaved tales of truth that often revealed just how wonderfully unique his view of the world was compared to others. It is possible that as his baby brother, I am a lot like him. What can be said with all certainty 
is that I turned out okay, in part because he provided me with solid evidence that I did not need to be from Mars to have the particular perspectives we storytellers have on the life we human beings live. Ray's unique ability to see deep into ordinary everyday events and pull out the thread that connects to the meaning of what makes all life worth living stayed with him at least through his elementary school days. Ray even earned a worrisome reputation with his teachers for never telling the truth as they perceived the world. They thought he lied and made up things just to get attention. Several notes were sent home explaining to my mother how her son needed more discipline to make sure that this trait did not continue on into his adulthood. So on the first day of second grade, the teacher invited students to share one story each about what they had done over the summer break. Other children in the class shared the standard stories of vacations with their family and state fair annual showings. Ray sat calmly in the back row and waited to tell his story of what happened over his summer. Ray eventually was asked to come to the front of the class where he shared that his house had moved. The teacher quickly corrected him saying, Ray, houses don't move. You mean your family moved houses. Ray shouted back with animated excitement, no, our house moved and it was moved by an elephant. He went on to adding details about what the elephant's rider was wearing, how big the log chains were, and even how many times the elephant had to stop pulling to go poop. His teacher finally stopped and told him to go sit in the corner for lying to the class. At the end of the day, the teacher was so upset that she drove Ray to the home he said had been moved by an elephant. As they pulled into the old cinder driveway of the farm, my mother and grandmother were waiting on the porch. Before internet, email, or Snapchat, word had spread across the county by way of party line phones. Everyone for miles around knew about how Ray's teacher had accused him of lying about an elephant and the moving of his house. Normally, my mother was as calm as a gentle breeze drifting through the summer corn. However, as it turns out, when the teacher accused her son of lying, that gentle breeze turned into a Midwestern tornado. Since the house in question had been moved directly adjacent to my grandparents' back door, my grandmother joined my mother in a perfect storm of righteous indignation. It was not a pretty scene, and this was from my mother's cleaned-up description of the event many years later. Mom and Grandma carefully explained to Ray's teacher that indeed the house had been moved by an elephant down the hill to the current location of what I came to know as the garage. They explained that the original plan had been to put the house on skids and pull it down the hill with the farm tractor but the tractor had broken down. Just about the same time, the Al G. Kelly and Miller Brothers Circus was coming through the area. The local Albion newspaper had been advertising for weeks that the circus would be in town for a one-day-only performance. They traveled from Ottumwa to Albia via Highway 34, which at the time ran directly down the middle of our farm. As they were passing by, they noticed the house on skids and the apparent distress over the broken down tractor and decided to stop and talk with the locals. This happens a lot in rural Iowa as relationships often over rural agendas, plans, and predetermined schedules. I think this is why my grandfather never wore a watch. As a half city boy, when I would stay overnight on the farm, I would often ask impatiently about what we were going to do next or 
what time I should set my alarm to get up in the morning. And Grandpa would lightly smirk, trying not to embarrass his grandchild and say, well, as farmers, we get up with the sun and the purpose of tomorrow will be determined by the people we meet and the chores that need to be done. His answer was not fully satisfying to me, but it was this different cultural mindset that allowed for the well-timed interaction with the circus people that day. After a brief conversation with my grandfather, the circus manager offered to help as a way to advertise the circus. So, Ray's house had indeed been moved down the hill with the help of a circus elephant, just as he had shared in class. You see, Ray was still young and had no reason to lie or keep secrets yet. In time, that would change, and the elephant house would morph into a garage and hide one of our family's biggest secrets. The reason why keeping secrets works so well for most human beings is that we tend to understand the world as if the way it is now is the way it has always been. We have a difficult time comprehending or even imagining that things have not always been in the same configuration in which they exist when we come into the world. Our human brains will even filter out inconsistencies in what we see in order to maintain the illusion of a static universe. The same trait works in reverse as well, in that as we get older and the world does change all around us, we become hypersensitive and occasionally overwhelmed by how much the world is not like it was when we were younger. It has only been through my extraterrestrial realization that things were different before I came to live on the Earth that I have been allowed to see that the future could, and most likely would, be different too. Before it was the house that an elephant lugged down the hill, the garage was the humble and happy home of my early family. It was just a small house, and really, with my parents having just brought home their fourth child, the space must have been a little claustrophobic for all who lived under that roof. My two sisters shared the only bedroom beyond my parents' small alcove. My oldest brother, Ray, slept on the couch in the living room, and the newest arrival, my brother Jimmy, was kept safe at night in his crib, which was just behind the couch. Yet in all the stories about my family's early time in the house on the hill, Never once did someone describe it as too small. The openness of the valley and expansiveness of the farm likely mitigated any negative feelings as there was always plenty of other outdoor spaces to explore. Their world really was so different from the world I was to be born into a few years later. Then again, the world I was to be born into was one with a garage instead of a house and only one sister instead of two. Without the subtle clues I found while playing inside the garage, I may never have discovered the family secret, or at least the story they tried never to speak about. It took nearly electrocuting myself, along with three decades of time, to finally learn why that house was now a garage, and why I grew up in nearby Atumwa, rather than on the farm like all my other siblings before me. I turned out okay because of their silence and secrets. However, over time, unintentional releases of details by my parents 
and my own observations of unremoved toilet fixtures pointing to a homier purpose for that garage revealed just enough for the storyteller to become aware of the hidden tragedy in my family. Sometimes I wish that particular story were still a secret. When my mother first came to live on the farm, the Second World War was just coming to an end. Although forgotten by most now, many people who lived in the middle of the United States began to believe a rumor that Adolf Hitler had faked his death and moved to the sparsely populated Midwest. My mother was one of those preteens in the rural United States who believed and feared that this could actually be true. Forty years later, my mother still trembled a little when she would tell me about her nightmares of Hitler charging over the rim of our protected valley. I only know of this story because of the one parental act that overrules even that of keeping the secrets of the past from the next generation. The act of comforting your children from those things that can bring them harm and fear in the present. On one particular night, as I awoke for the third night in a row, dripping with sweat and trembling from a fear that I could not fully explain, my mother told me in passing about her own childhood nightmares, or at least enough to help me know that I was not alone. That act of motherly comfort ended those dreams made of irrational things hidden in my unconscious, but it also opened the door to some of the secrets she was trying to keep hidden in her own heart and mind. In time, I would ask questions about a girl with beautiful, mesmerizing eyes in our early family pictures, whom I had never met, and who seemed to be sitting on a couch in a house that I had never visited. My mother would only say that her name was Bethy, and that she was my sister. Her real name was Reva Elizabeth Dunning. The name of my unknown sister was the perfect combination of my mother's name, Reva, and my grandmother's name, Elizabeth. I believe the bond formed between my mother and the daughter that she had bestowed her own name upon prevented her from sharing further details about that house on the hill, even with the son who came along later and eventually helped to heal her broken heart. Almost all the stories I know of Bethy and what happened to my family begin in the middle of the night as my mother and father carried her near lifeless body to the car in order to make an emergency trip to the hospital in Otomo. They had tried for days to allow the virus to run its course as it had with Bethy's two older siblings. However, on the third night, her temperature spiked to over 104, and despite all their attempts with cold compresses and fever-reducing medicines, it would not relent. So they carried their four-year-old baby girl out to the car and prepared for the terrifying journey into the unknown of the night. As my father drove down the dark highway until it crested over the valley, my mother held Bethy in her arms and cried. There is a moment in every human's life when they come face to face with the gravity of just how fragile and mortal the human body can be. In those moments, we are pulled into a single overwhelming focus and nothing else in the world around us exists. As my mother held the withering body of her daughter and allowed her own image to be reflected in her child's glassy eyes, her focus narrowed into the darkness that would eventually be the reason that house became a garage. My sister died that night on the way to the hospital and created such an abyss of confusion and pain that Stories from the immediate aftermath simply do not exist. When trauma is experienced in the human brain, 
A protective film or filter covers those receptors that store memories, thereby preventing any recall of those devastating life moments. My family learned to keep secrets on the farm, but some secrets were kept even from their own human brains, at least for a while. After a few months had gone by, the emotional protective fog lifted, and my mother began to notice all the places and things that possessed the memory of her daughter. It seems now that when my mother lost her child, Bethy's soul was imprinted onto every board of that house. I do not mean that she became a ghost that haunted the house, but it was more as if the family's memories of her were triggered by the very smells, reflections, and physical attributes they encountered while continuing to live inside its walls. After images of her playing in the yard or sitting on the couch or making a mess at the kitchen table began to project themselves through my mother's eyes in particular. This is why that house had to become a garage, to set my mother and the rest of the family free, if not completely, at least enough to make another home together. This new home would be in Ottumwa, Iowa, and it would take a journey through three other house locations before the family settled in at the house I came to know as 818 East Holt Street. My parents would eventually have two final unplanned children, and together as the family I came to know, they helped make that new house a home. The farm and that garage became a place we visited from time to time, but it no longer served as our family's daily sanctuary. It was perhaps because my family learned to keep those secrets all those years that the farm became one of the best places on earth to grow up. Without the farm and the lessons I learned there, I would never have turned out as okay as I did.